if I can get your attention, we're going to start just a smidge early today. There's, this is a hot topic. Um, our speaker, look at, ready. So, just a couple housekeeping items. Um, first of all, want to welcome you here. Please take a quick moment to um, turn the volume off your phones. So turn off your phones. We'd like some peace out there at Sasquatch, but turn your volume off. Um, my name is Bobby Cullum, and I will be your moderator today. I would like to remind all of you here that this session is being recorded, and uh, lunch today is $12. If you want to throw your $12 in the basket and find a representative at the table to count it to ensure all the monies are there, that would help us out today. So just to remind those who haven't been here for a while, our session runs um, with a presentation. I've heard a full 30 minutes is in order, so that is excellent. Um, then we will have a 30-minute lunch break. Meet back for question and answer period for 30 minutes, 25 to 30. And so today, without further ado, I think many of you have met him before. He's been in Lethbridge since 1969. It's fantastic, and I won't take up any more of your time but to say please welcome Dr. James Hedge. Okay, can everyone hear me okay? Uh, I want to thank SACPA for this invitation. It is a, uh, a unique institution, and this city is lucky to have it. And it's also about to become a venerable institution because it's uh, going on its 50th year. Hard to believe it's been that long. Now I'm glad that uh, Knude Pedersen put a uh, title on this talk because I couldn't come up with one that was less than 50 or 60 years long. Uh, it, the scope of it is a little bit daunting. Uh, so I, I didn't use one, but I, today mine would be sick and tired. But that's a personal reflection. <laughs> Maybe not so personal. Let me start first by saying that this is a, an election that, a presidential election that's both conventional and unconventional. It is unconventional in that we have a person we have never seen before in American politics, um, and that I mean that never before in American politics. And who, who am I talking about? Both of them, absolutely. We have a woman running for president. That seems to be forgotten a little bit. And we have a person who is, has absolutely no talent in governance or politics and, well, maybe does in politics, and uh, has, has set a record for the uh, lowest level of human decency of any American candidate. And that takes, there's some competition for that. So uh, Mr. Trump is, of course, a, uh, a conventional candidate. He's an old, rich, white ma man, uh, and she is the unconventional one from that standpoint. Now let me start by uh, what I call full disclosure here. My politics are left of center, uh, although I'm no longer as ideologically left as I am pragmatically left, I think. My ideal in American history has become the progressive era from about 1900 to 1916 when practical solutions were sought by both Republican and Democratic progressives to large and pressing problems. That era is a distant memory set against American politics today. 
now there is no party of even the center left. The Democrats are a center right party and the Republicans are so far right that they may fall off the edge of the earth. Republican beliefs on a wide range of issues are not so much less crazy than flat earth beliefs. Now, the election of 2016, I won't keep you waiting. Hillary Clinton will win, almost certainly will win, despite a downturn in the last few days and, and predictions of uh, how, how uh, easy she will win. Um, I follow a site called 538, which is probably the best site in terms of prognostication on American elections. And uh, I should say that contrary to what you see on television or read in the press, uh, 538 is borderline. It's exceedingly boring viewing. Um, if Hillary Clinton wins, it is important to the country that she win by a large margin with a good voter turnout and with a Democratic takeover of the U.S. Senate, which still is supposedly a 66% possibility as of this moment. Those elements might bring at least some mild reforms. Anything less than a strong victory is likely to mean another four years of federal government stalemate, stagnation, and inaction in the U.S. If Donald Trump wins, there is no easy way to know what might happen. He is unschooled in politics and in government. government. He may let others make the large domestic decisions for him. He appears to have enthusiasm only to be a figurehead president a kind of beauty queen winner, to use an appropriate analogy. He may be checked somewhat in foreign policy gaffes and dangerous wars by experts and the military, but he will literally be a loose cannon in regard to foreign relations. Let me look at the candidates briefly before talking about some other things. Hillary Clinton is a political animal, and she has been ever since her years as a college student. Having been a U.S. Senator and Secretary of State, she may have a too thorough knowledge of politics as the art of the possible. She is not a large vision person yet. She is temperamentally cautious, private, and too unwilling to expose even her smallest mistake to her political opponents for the fear that she will be swept away by some right-wing tsunami of criticism. She has some right to feel that way. The long drawn out Whitewater investigation of the 1990s, being slapped down for heading up the search for a national health care plan early in her husband's first administration, being subjected to Bill Clinton's tawdry philandering, being pilloried by Republicans for some imaginary mistake she made at Benghazi, and the infamous exposure of emails from her personal server after she was Secretary of State have all left her more than left her more thick-skinned than we would like in a head of state as opposed to her opponent who is notoriously thin-skinned. On the other hand, charges that she is just the lesser of two evils in this election is preposterous. It's a preposterous, highly contrived argument that is largely a fabrication of the Republican Party. And they've insisted on this more and more because their candidate with their candidates, they had no choice but to claim that the Democratic candidate was equally bad. Also, the press tends to normalize and equalize, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, it is also charged that she is unlikable, 
According to all accounts, she is liked by everyone she knows. Those who do not like her are Republicans. She is not a great orator like William Jennings Bryan or FDR, but she is very knowledgeable and smart and in command of important details. She has been called by Democrats the most qualified presidential candidate ever. This is an exaggeration, of course, and she should not aspire to that claim uh, or that mantle because the last person elected president of the United States and also proclaimed as the best qualified ever was Herbert Hoover, whose presidency collapsed with the Great Depression. Now, Donald Trump. Donald Trump is an uninformed, basely and willfully ignorant, abysmally immoral, misogynistic, racist, adolescently retarded, fatuous, lazy, sometimes insouciating, insouciant, bloviating, lying, cheating, vulgar, womanizing, outrageous scoundrel. <laughs> no, <laughs> no it, that's not all. Van Christie said, is that all? But it's, it's not. There are many others. I've forgotten the list now. I was amazed that Hil Hillary Clinton was quick enough on her feet when pressed in the debates to think of something good to say about Mr. Trump in her, in, in her alluding to his good children. But my catalog of Trump failings are not the important reasons for why we should ne he should never be elected. As I wrote in a letter to the Herald in June, Mr. Trump should have been abandoned early on by even his own party for two important reasons. Number one, he is a fascist. And number two, he is a narcissist. The first is a populist political religion and authoritarian mode of government unacceptable in a Republican democracy. The second is, in his case, a mental disorder severe enough, by all evidence, to make him unreliable and probably incapable to make sound decisions or to maintain a stable approach to almost all governance issues. First, let me talk about fascism. Like the other F word, fascism has lost its seriousness as well as its precise meaning by too frequent usage. Today, it is generally used by someone as the ultimate slur against another's political character or as a means of ending, ending or trumping the slurs of another person. This is not to say that Mr. Trump is a Nazi. Nazism is too organized and, and complex for Mr. Trump. He is more, and many people agree on this, he's more like Mussolini. In fact, he often poses with his chin up and his lips pursed, precisely like Mussolini. Altogether, it is best to label Mr. Trump a natural fascist rather than someone who came to fascism through careful calculation. Natural or not, fascism is real and dangerous, and he spreads it, and he spreads it to a large and dangerous faction. He is a fascist for some obvious reasons that I am certain most of you have noted. He makes visceral appeals to greatness, make America great again, which imply the use of force against the enemies of the people. He lies almost constantly. Well, about 71% of the time, according to politifact.com, this is an excellent place to check out the, the truth of the statements of many truthful people. As the Nazi hierarchy understood, a big lie repeated often enough is eventually embraced as the true truth. He disdains the institutions of government, suggesting the application of power and force are needed beyond and outside constitutional, let alone democratic means. In 1995, the renowned literary scholar, philosopher, and author Umberto Eco wrote a piece for the New York 
review of books entitled Ur-Fascism, or prototypical or primitive fascism, or eternal fascism. In this excellent essay, Echo argued that fascism is always at least latent in nations, and he summarized 14 ways to define fascism and its would-be leaders. I'm not going to go through all 14. Echo noted that fascism was a rigid discom discombobulation, a rigid discombobulation of headquarters, a philosophically out-of-joint set of ideas, and that's Mr. Trump to a T. Fascism appeals to a cult of tradition, he claim, Echo claimed, but a selective tradition. Mr. Trump has charged political correctness with destroying this tradition. Fascism also appeals to action for action's sake. Trump says he likes to fight. So pick out those Mexicans, literally. Bomb ISIS to smithereens. Fascism broaches no tolerance as well to a heckler, Mr. Trump famously combined the impulse for visceral action and intolerance by saying, I'd like to punch him in the face. Fascism opposes intruders, that is, Mexicans and immigrants. Trump even opposes birthright citizenship, which is totally unconstitutional, if those born in the U.S. are not traditional Americans. And that's a racist truth. Fascism psychologically attaches itself to obsessions with a plot. For Mr. Trump, that plot is the election is fixed. He may not accept the election. Fascism appeals to a frustrated middle class. It demands that citizens rise up heroically under one leader. That leader is Mr. Trump, who in his own words isn't contemptuous of ordinary people, as have been most fascists in the past. It is he alone, not the Republican Party, who will make America great again in a permanent war of the us versus them. Echo also claimed that fascists, un usually unable to play at war, turn to sex as a perverse substitute embracing a machismo attitude in which women are seen as deceitful and weak, defined by their physic physical being alone. And Echo concluded, a fascist speaks, quote, with an impoverished vocabulary and an elementary syntax in order to limit the instruments for complex and critical reasoning. If Mr. Echo had not died earlier this year, I'm confident that he would have awarded Mr. Trump the leading prize fascist test. Now, narcissism. Narcissism is intertwined with Mr. Trump's fascism. Narcissism, too, is a tired word thrown around casually to label anyone who is arrogant, self-regarding, and self-indulgent. But narcissism can be identified across a broad spectrum of behavior. Sigmund Freud, who identified the disorder, claimed that, prime, claimed that primary narcissism was common, but that a secondary narcissism could be debilitating involving the failure of a person to move from love of him or herself and loving another person and then having the capacity to receive that love back. A narcissist lacks empathy and usually fails to listen to others or to try to understand others. Subsequent psychologists, and I've got some
Um, subsequent psychologists like Heinz Phillips have taken a more positive view, recognizing the need of ever for everyone to pass through a period of narcissistic self-importance before maturation. Freud, Poet, and all others also admit that narcissism is a natural and is natural and present in all of us to a degree, and that the narcissist itself is the beginning of a fuller, healthy self in adulthood. But profound narcissism, what Freud calls secondary narcissism, is another thing. The standard clinical source on narcissism today is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, edition five, and is used by psychologists and psychiatrists for evaluative purposes. According to DSM-5, a disordered narcissist is defined as, among other things, a person having an exaggerated sense of self-importance and exposing the need to be seen as superior, superior even without achievements that warrant it, and that is narcissistic. The narcissist exaggerates their achievements and talents, requires constant admiration, and has a sense of entitlement, Mr. Propaganda. The narcissist takes advantage of others to get what they want, but is unable or unwilling to recognize the needs and feelings of others. Ever see Mr. Trump uh, give his vice presidential candidate, Mrs. Pence, who he ignores her, I'm a competitor. Mr. Trump matches the diagnostic elements almost completely. In my research on an 18th century figure who is also narcissistic, but who is eminently more intelligent than Mr. Trump, I found another behavior shared by these two narcissists. My man, Gouverneur Morris, and Mr. Trump like to say things unexpectedly, often out of context, as a means to show off their wit or their prowess and to put their listeners off balance. Regarding Mr. Trump, this pattern of speech seems to be increasing as he fails time and again to stay on policy topics and switches without a segue to personal or delicate topics. Throughout the latter stages of the campaign in particular, but also from the start, Mr. Trump has displayed the narcissistic rage that rises when a narcissist is embarrassed or feels that they may have failed or are going to fail. As for Mr. Trump, these rages have included lashing out at his opponent, Ryan Hillary, throw her in prison, I'll have you prosecuted for all your lies and wrongdoings when I'm elected, or lashing out at Mexicans, rapists and murderers, the media, all of whom are engaged in a left-wing conspiracy against him, or the government itself, itself, carrot and stick. Although it does not have to be the case, with Mr. Trump, fascism and narcissism go hand in hand. Mild forms of narcissism with a personality disorder can be treated with behavior modifications who knows what can be done with a fascist personality. But if fascism is unacceptable in a republic and a democracy, the thorough narcissism Mr. Trump displays would likely cause him to be unacceptable, uh, do unacceptable things as president or to cripple him so severely that he could not perform the demanding tasks as president. Let me talk briefly about policy because that's all we talked about this evening. Debate over policy has almost entirely disappeared in this election, despite Secretary Clinton's attempts to show how much time and effort she has put into developing specific policies. Mr. Trump's campaign approaches, campaign approaches have shown us why policies go undiscussed. He's bored with them, and he is unwilling to do the work necessary to bring them forward. Big contentious issues have therefore gone unaddressed. Poverty, income inequality, and climate change are difficult subjects for both sides, 
But because Mr. Trump did not want to discuss policy very much anyway, Secretary Clinton is relieved from the necessity to bring up the big difficult issues either. The media and press are merely silent, satisfied with the surface before them. Now, who are the villains behind the scenes here? I'm going to talk about two of them. First, there's the Republican Party itself. At the end of World War I, the old conservative Republican Party, having rejected progressivism but wanting to return to power, decided to promote the first red scare against emergent communism, thereby, thereby attacking most immigration and those who are not white, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Almost no immigration existed in the 1920s uh, under Republican governments. The Republicans also returned to being the party of business. In the mid-1920s, President Calvin Coolidge drolly declared, the business of America is business. Laissez-faire was the order of the day, and successive Republican presidents filled the Supreme Court with justices opposed to corporate regulation. It was the start of a Republican pattern that would continue for the next century. The Great Depression and the New Deal reform period that followed were seen as an abomination by the Republicans. FDR's name was anathema to, to them, and they proclaimed New Deal reforms unconstitutional, a harbinger of things to come in the late 20th century. It took the Republican right a long time to regain power. Eisenhower was a moderate Republican, and JFK and LBJ continued it to expand the middle class. When the Republicans recovered with the election of Richard Nixon, the right wing thought they were back. Then Watergate happened. The Republican right felt pilloried by a Democratic Party too gleeful and too thorough in its persecution of Tricky Dick. The Republicans wanted revenge, and they've wanted revenge ever since. In 1980, the Republican right got some measure of revenge with the election of Ronald Reagan, a staunch anti-union, pro-business conservative. Reagan added a new element to the Republican right religion, however, and that was his declaration that, quote, government is not the solution, government is our problem. Government is the problem. Hatred of government thus became the mantra of the right up to and including the present day. To make matters worse, Reagan, who actually got by simply with a wink and a smile and a quip, uh, introduced supply-side economics, or voodoo economics, as his own vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, called it, an idea that returned Republican economic theory to trickle-down economics in the 20s, and which began the further move, move toward austerity contraction when times got bad. Intelligent economists from the 1930s on had long since abandoned trickle-down and austerity as a response to recession and depression, but the Republicans became and remain firmly wedded to it. Yesterday, 370 economists uh, put out a petition that no one should vote <laughs> for uh, Donald Trump, uh, although they didn't say vote for Hillary Clinton e either. So here we are today with a long and strong conservative Republican message that business is good, labor is bad, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants are good, immigrants and people of color are bad, Unre unregulated freedom for corporate capitalism is good, government regulation is bad, all government, big or small, is bad. 
After eight, year of eight years of Republican Congresses being unwilling to pass any meaningful le legislation as well, is it any wonder that the disaffected right is willing to tear the government down for the election of Donald Trump, and many of them are, or that is now willing to express their racism baldly, and that is a <coughs> characteristic of this election that's very important too. A second villain in all of this is the media and the press. There are many good investigative reporters today, more than before probably, and newspapers like the New York Times and magazines like the Atlantic Monthly publish exhaustive, well-researched articles and essays on politics and public affairs. And there are others too, I don't mean to mention them too much in there. All of this has had little effect, however. In general, the media, especially TV and radio and many blogs, are transparently partisan kowtowing to their owners and publishers who insist on party-line purity, ignoring truth and facts when it does not suit them, reducing the political debate to racehorse politics in order to keep the entertainment element of politics alive and thereby enhance their profits. Indeed, beliefs have replaced observable truths, as Chad McSuey recently argued in a letter to the Herald, I think in early October. Perhaps the worst thing that has happened and become ubiquitous since the 1980s is the practice of media press institutions who claim they are not partisan to feign their impartiality by appearing to present both sides of a political debate. Equivalency, or both-sidism, as New York Times columnist Paul Krugman puts it, both-sidism allows the extremes of both parties to present their arguments. But with the political spectrum already shifted far to the right, this means that at best, readers or listeners or viewers get a center-right argument, representing the left, versus a batshit crazy far-right argument on the right. It may surprise you, but the PBS NewsHour, which I watch faithfully, has long been one of the chief offenders in bo using both sidism and some of the worst possible ones. The important message is the media press in the U.S. are far less interested than they used to be in finding and presenting an impartial truth than they are in pandering to corporate ownership, popular and banal entertainment interests, as well as those uh, as well as pandering to those who scream and yell loudest to have their views given equal time. Now I want to finish talking about the disaffectedness of this all. Because of the perverse look-at-me campaign of Donald Trump, we have not only lost the discussion of policy issues, we have lost focus on the disaffection of large numbers of the American population from both the left and the right. Let me talk about the left for a second. When Bernie Sanders' campaign failed to defeat Hillary Clinton, Senator Sanders felt compelled to endorse fully Senator Secretary Clinton, given the specter of a Trump presidency. His millennial followers have not joined him. Early voting shows a downturn in young voters, and it may stay that way. Why are they disaffected? We might better ask why they would not be disaffected. Those without a higher education uh, can find only the poorest jobs, often paying a minimum wage that is not sufficient to sustain. 
those in higher education are running up unsustainable debts, and the rise of university food banks is proof positive of how desperate those in the system are. They see no clear future for themselves. We are told that they have to be educated, but, they are, but that they almost also must be adaptable and ready to change jobs frequently. There is little hope and no future in a society where capital makes its workers dance to their every demand. And he's right. Mr. Trump's core of supporters also feel left out for some of the same reasons. Old jobs have disappeared and no new ones are there to replace them. They believe Mexican immigrants and illegals are taking their jobs or being privileged in ways they are not. But economics is not all of it. They feel, at least subconsciously, that the new left movement for the inclusion of all persons into society on an equal footing, regardless of sex, gender, color, sexual orientation, and ethnicity, has diminished them. Those persons foreign to their own white culture, but often poor culture, are suspect to them. And the disaffected white right are lashing out at their loss of status as well as each other. And then there's the disaffection of everyone. There's not yet, there's a not yet fully articulated cultural malaise that courses through most of the Western world. One source of that, I would argue, is reflected in the ideas of the French postmodernist philosophers, whom figured in the chapter brought together the French postmodern philosophy. These philosophers claim that we are overwhelmed by the large meta or overarching narratives of our culture and the totalizing effects of those meta-narratives. Let me cite two. Science. The demands of scientific truth derived from a rigorous scientific method means that all knowledge falls increasingly under the purview of scientific expertise alone. Science has totalized knowledge. Whether it is climate change or economics or even religion, many individual Americans feel that their cultural habits and beliefs have been undermined by the authoritarian control of scientific thought. Ironically, postmodernist thought has been wrongly interpreted by some people in rebellion against the meta-narratives of their culture to claim that our opinions or beliefs are equally valid. Thus, we have a new rise in a belief in a flat earth and new denials of the moon landing, and worse, a belief that man-made climate change is a hoax perpetrated by scientists. Another large meta-narrative is global capitalism. Since the 1980s, and especially after the fall of, the Soviet, of Soviet communism in the late 1980s, capitalism has become another meta-narrative infusing its principles in all areas of life. There is no alternative to capitalism, we are told. The free market and free trade are the only means to treat the create the best global economy. And modern management techniques, which I think are essentially old authoritarian management techniques, are presented as the only appropriate means of governing this capitalist surge. Recently, I have come to call modern capitalism for what it is, totalitarian capitalism. Its totalizing principles now infect not only business and government, but the purposes and directions of universities, the methods and operations of charities, and even the operations of religious institutions to some degree. It is present everywhere, and its forms are demanded in all institutional behavior, as far as I can see. 
whether the meta-narratives of science or capitalism are appropriate for our human needs or not, or whether they are in fact the only way to proceed, many Americans and others in the Western world feel enslaved by these forces over which they have no control. In a culture that has treasured the capacity of persons to lead lives that include autonomy, agency, and personal authority, the effect is often outrage and a desire for any change as a means of relief. And these go beyond political uh, beliefs and political stances and what political party you belong to. And that's it. I don't have any s smart thing to say. <laughs> <laughs>